The following program may contain content not suitable for all audiences. So what is your what is your podcast going to be? Have you decided what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, I want to do it once a week if I can. I want to talk. It's going to be about people's characters. And what I want to talk about is who is your favorite character that you've played in a role-playing <laughs> game and why? <laughs> It, I think it's the it's this self indulgent thing that people will love to talk about. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! So you're you're doing a podcast that's all tell me about your character? Yeah, 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 yeah. But just <laughs> one character per guest, right? We, I don't want to sit there and talk about all their characters. Oh but my But I want gosh, them to tell dude. me about their character. I've I've suffered through it for twenty years, right? So right. yeah, yeah. Why not suffer through it in a positive way, where I can actually ask good questions back? We can talk about the character. And it can give people something to learn from. People that listen to the show can learn from it. That is, I don't know. It's it could be brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's it's such an interesting stigma. <laughs> yeah, there's, having to listen yeah. to people talk about the character. <laughs> right, right. And right. well, and I think the people that do it may not realize how uh, not. It, I don't even think it's that annoying for somebody to tell me about their character. What they don't realize is that. When you're the 50th person at convention to do it to me, yeah. it's a bit much. And so I, I had the best time at Gen Con one year. Somebody was telling me about their character, and he had a fascinating character. And then we that led to us talking about campaigns. And we must have talked for three hours at a bar at the Omni uh, downtown. People that go to Gen Con would know that, what the Omni is. That led to this, this great conversation. He was one of Storm Cook's friends. Um, Ty, I think was his name. I've mentioned him before in podcasts, but it's been years since I've talked about him or to him. But we had a great conversation. So it can lead to positive things. It doesn't have to be stigmatized. Right. No, yeah. Obviously, it's it's stigmatized to the point of being a meme or a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it, the truth is that gaming, I mean, a lot of the function of these kinds of games is nostalgia. You know, it's a chance to share an experience that then we can revisit at some level, often with the people that were involved over the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's meaningful. I mean, I love love getting together with players I've used to game with for years that I haven't gamed with in years and and reminiscing you know because that's that's a powerful experience that um, has held up over time you know and, and obviously been distilled in that, in that time but. if if you look at gaming as sort of this microscopic version of the oral tradition mm-hmm. if if it's it can be used I shouldn't even say if because that's qualitative it can be used in a positive way or in a good way to tell stories that we just need to get out of our system, right? Maybe you played a character in your past that was just cathartic. And when you were done playing, parts of you, you didn't have to have that anger anymore about that thing. Because Krom, mm-hmm. your barbarian, just took care of that problem in your imaginary world. And so going back and exploring that can have, and being able to share that story with other people, can be useful. It can. I'm, I realize I'm being a little philosophic now. And well, there are still no. people telling horrible stories about their characters, but yeah, I think but, but when you're, people. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna. I was just gonna qualify that though. You're also looking back on it, uh, the you know, with the perspective of somebody who spent their life doing this. And it, I remember when I was young, it seemed like the kinds of uh, experience, the kind of stories that were told had a lot of that because we were young, and so there was a lot of raw emotion to process in our life when you're a teenager or when you're in your early 20s. Right, and, and, right. You know, there's nothing makes sense. So I, I remember seeing seeing a lot of that and talking to players about it. So and I, and I saw catharsis on a much broader scale later in life, too. My mom had this entire seeming kind of like coming to terms with her religious background experience in one of my campaigns that she talked to me about years afterward. Right. You know, that I never realized was really happening for her. And obviously, she wasn't a kid anymore. <laughs> So I mean, there's there's something to that, but I think uh, especially I remember with with like my high school friends and stuff, it seemed like people were working through their shit a lot. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And but we as kids, as other teenagers running those games, we're not qualified to help people with their emotions. Not everybody. <laughs> I would no therapist. Yeah. So in those instances, it's helpful to have an adult. I think we get older and we LARP or we we game at a table, and the game master tends to become the person that's the most zen. Not necessarily the person that's the best game master because they have to balance all of these personalities. Sure. I don't know. It's uh, an interesting sort of um, exploration. What's the right word? I, 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 I don't necessarily know there's a really great kind of research platform for it, but I, no. I think I'd be interested in finding out what other experiences are also from the game master's perspective in that regard because there's a lot to kind of um, 
if you're analytical at all, there's a lot to kind of apprehend about what people get out of your game. And a lot of GMs spend time trying to figure out what their players are getting out of the game. So that's not necessarily too out of left field. And a lot of game masters, if not particularly Zen people, are people that are interested in being at the center of a storytelling experience and balancing a lot of detail. So, you know, there's potential there for for kind of getting a handle on that. I don't necessarily, I, I, I obviously would never, even, even as somebody who's, you know, who has a background in psychology, you know, I've got an education in psychology, I don't feel like I would ever want to try and impro- insert myself into somebody else's emotional growth, you know, except maybe my kids. <laughs> but that's a little different. I have found that when I was uh, being a LARP game master a storyteller as they're Mm -hmm. called i guess that you end up becoming everybody's therapist and i don't know what it is about larps (laughs) that 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 happens i I bet i could i bet i could guess because larping since it's physical and puts you it puts you really into the center of the character experience is more vulnerable but that's exactly what it is and maybe you could be on to something that maybe it's something adjusts the physicality of standing up walking around sometimes you pull the game master aside and it's just a little one-on-one I guess it is a pretty, I mean, it's intended to be a pretty immersive experience. Yeah. I don't, I mean, when it's done well, I guess. I, I don't have any experience with LARPing, to be honest. Not personally. Oh, I used to do a ton of LARPing. Not the yeah, yeah, put yeah. on crazy clothes kind of LARPing. I just liked getting rid of the rules and being in character and telling a story in that manner. So for me, it was sure. just standing tabletop. But sure. um, I, yeah, I, 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 used to, I used to LARP a ton. For about a decade, I wrote a ton of LARPs and um, I was in a couple... Yeah, we used to augment some of our um, because my campaigns are often like you know spin over the years. We used to augment some of our campaign play with LARPing. Yeah, you know, do do really cool scenes, dramatic scenes that had nothing to do with the main story, right. or um, flashback stuff sometimes. And in in situations where there's no reason to engage any rules, it's all about just role play. And I, you know, I could easily do that thing like, okay, let's go over in the next room and we're going to do this thing. And you play this guy, you play this, you assign NPCs. And that's what I was just going to ask. Were you playing NPCs instead of your own characters? Because that would really add to, to it. Yeah, some of them. And the, the fun thing about that was the people then got to play those roles and invent them as they went instead of, you know, me sitting there as the game master playing every NPC in the world. You know, and you just kind of you just kind of play along with that. I mean, that's part of the fun, obviously. But that's interesting. There was a kid I used to play in uh, high school with. His name was Nathan. He he kind of taught me the idea of pulling one character aside into another room and talking to them, which I had never done before. Everything was always open at the table. And once he uh, once we had done that, I had learned a great deal about, oh, well, maybe some characters should know things that others don't. And that gives them some more value at the table if they can be the ones that bring up this information in their own voice. Right. The way they want to. That's cool. You know, it just occurred to me I'd be a terrible guest for your show. I've played so few characters over the years. (laughs) That's funny. Wrong side of the screen. Yeah, I I haven't played that many characters either, to be honest. I'm mostly game master. I I Um, stopped and thought about it for a second. I'm like, you know, who could I talk about? Yeah. I, and even even then, you know, I'm sure I have, but I don't remember a lot of them in depth because I didn't get the same kind of long term investment that a lot of that I tried to you know run games in. So I remember those stories better, the ones that I've that I've been running and managing behind the screen, uh, because of course they have so many great characters that I've gotten to know over that time. But none of them are mine, you know. Anyway, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I should mention if you're listening to Metagamers Anonymous. Got <laughs> Jim Pinto, Jim Pinto on with me today. Yeah, we just sort of started, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, no, it's I like that. The, the it's the cold roll, you know. Yep. <laughs> uh, what what do you have a name for the podcast then? I have not. I've not named it yet. I haven't recorded any episodes yet. I'm I'm suffering through the technology at the moment because this isn't my forte. Well, it sounds like we may have gotten some of you figured out there. Yeah, uh, it's podcasting has gotten pretty accessible. I uh, when I when I started originally when I started doing my first podcast, it was like 2005. It was so arcane. I just didn't have any clue what I was doing. And I had to turn to people who were much more computer savvy than me to figure it out. I just knew I was a radio guy and I was a gamer person and I wanted to put these together. <laughs> so uh, I, I, you know, I, I learned a lot at the time, but not enough to keep it up once I no longer had access to the people that were helping me out. So that one died on the vine. And then when I got back into it, it had gotten a lot, a lot easier. And nowadays, uh, anybody, I mean, there's so many services out there that don't cost a thing that just kind of help you figure out everything you need. Right. And and then there's plenty of other services that are trying to make a buck. So, you know, yeah. like everything. Yeah. And I know that I'm not going to make any money doing this, that it's just going to be a fun side project to just talk with people I know in the industry, talk with my friends. And Well, I don't know nine years of Metagamers Anonymous, and I've never made any money. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's not the goal, obviously. Right. <laughs> well, hopefully you're not. It's not costing you a thousand dollars a week, right? No, no. Because then no, that no, gets no. ridiculous as a hobby. My point being yeah. is that, uh, and I, I'm being facetious. Yeah. Because I I do have a Patreon that is oriented largely around the podcast, and uh, you know. A, a number of people, a small, relatively small number of people that I owe a great deal of gratitude to that help support us every week and cover, end up covering uh, costs they probably don't even realize. You know, my web hosting and the software that I use for everything and and my my, my ratings, you know, stuff like that. Everything I get that uh, the community helps me pay for, I just can't take that for granted. It's I can't thank them enough. So while I'm here on the air talking about it, I don't want anybody to think I'm, I'm ignorant of that. <laughs> fact that there is money coming in a little bit yeah and, i know uh, really we, we live in an age of inauthenticity right where yeah. pe- people want to be authentic but they don't know how to be authentic and because inauthentic people have stolen things like i'm really appreciative of my listeners and i'm holding my hands together while i do this in mockery um i'm really no, appreciative you're... of my listeners and i just couldn't do this without them when somebody genuine says it the people that are disingenuous have already ruined that sort of thing. And it's difficult to sound genuine when you're being thankful, <laughs> right? I can't go on my Kickstarters and say, gosh, guys, thanks so much for making this project happen. Because <laughs> right? 97 million jackoffs have come before me and made that, that same platitude. And so I, I genuinely don't write like that or talk like that anymore because I don't want to sound. So I've lost the part of my, me that would actually be genuine, which says, thank you, which I'm very happy to say thank you to people all the time. Yeah. I don't do it as often in a public manner because I don't want to be associated with people that don't know how to do it. Well, similarly, I mean, the only place that I end up gushing about, you know, the convention is uh, on the last day in the last hour of the convention. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where I, yeah. I get on stage uh, in front of the, the handful of people that have bothered to stick around, you know, for closing ceremonies or whatever. And it feels like it's the time to, to, to let everybody know how much I appreciate what they've done. Yeah. But they're not doing it for me, <laughs> you know. They're doing it all to have a good time and and to keep you know get to keep doing it every year. So it's 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 not a big deal. Te- typically, technically, you kind of got to look at, at content the same way. Any anytime you're a content creator, you know people will appreciate you for doing the artistic or creative thing you're doing, but they're not doing it for you. They're doing it for them. Right. Right. You know, even if it's just to feel good about supporting something that you feel has value. And I I mean, obviously, you got to appreciate that. That's. Knowing what you care about enough to put something into it, to expend some resource on it, that's good. That's that's quality self-awareness right there. No issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think you pretty much summed it up, but you've got guys like Kanye West. I think they're the ones that are ruining it for everybody, right? Because they're these huge figures who are constantly putting them at the, themselves at the center of everything. Oh, I'm a genius. Look at what I've created. And a true authentic art, auth- authentic artist doesn't say, look at me, look at what I've created. They say, here's this work. That's the difference between trying to present the work as art and trying to build a brand. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, I was on a podcast with uh, Leah Bond once, and she asked me at the end of the podcast, is there anything you wish I'd asked you? And I said, actually, I wish you hadn't asked me anything personal because I didn't. I don't want to put me before the work. I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about what I designed because that's, to me, much more interesting than I am. You know, the, the truth is, though, I mean, especially when you are dealing with a sea of mediocrity and, uh, you know, and, and admittedly, obviously, nowadays, which I mean, it's very nice to see uh, also a, a very small river of excellence. But you have to find a way to create some consciousness of your product. And if you don't connect the product through the brand of yourself – then you may find one thing that people come across and go, well, that's excellent, but never look at anything else you made. Right. And you need to be able to support your ability to keep doing it and, you, you know, the will to keep doing it. <laughs> you know, the art has to be self-supportive uh, in some fashion, uh, unless you, of course, you know, happen to live in a world where that isn't necessary, which most of us don't. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's that's worth something. Speaking of which, you said you're, you're, you're launching a Kickstarter. Actually, we're recording this on Tuesday. I'm going to try to get it out. Um, either today or tomorrow, but um, either way, you're launching it now. So. I'm launching it tomorrow, yeah, on the 18th. On Wednesday, yeah. 18th, gotcha. Mm. What are we kickstarting? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really short. It's a real quick little protocol game I made a long time ago, and I'm doing a really thick, advanced version of it. Um, the original is eight pages. This one's going to be over 100. So, Is it uh, one I've heard of? Yeah, it's Eons, the one I did the special oh. for Wichita, mm-hmm. and Wichita's going to be in the book. Nice. Um, 
Excellent. <laughs> One of the things that that game has always struggled with, and maybe protocol isn't even the right format for it, and that's why uh, it struggles, but I wanted to make something weird and horror at the same time, and there's so much setup required to make that one work that the original version of it that I made just doesn't have enough meat on the bone. And so hmm. this one is a lot of setup, a lot of question and answer before you can get started. And uh, it's going to make the, the gameplay a lot longer, but I hope better and richer. I've been playtesting it a lot to try to find out where the where the where the holes in the design are, and so it's sure. completely written at this point. It's just tinkering now with the charts, tinkering with the the language. How do I want to say this to set up this part of the book? Well, so. So, somehow I imagine you've largely gotten past the point of when am I done with this? Just go, yeah. Just print it, yeah. But I mean, I, that's got to be a constant struggle for some of that stuff. It is. It is, certainly is for me. It's one of the things that stops me from producing more work in a year um, is because of this medium, because this medium is dominated by D&D, having mm. to explain to people why or how this is different than D&D and how to play it different. You waste so much energy doing that. I could put out a game a day if I didn't have to write examples of play, if I didn't have to hold hands through these new ideas. Um, that that yeah. really for me. And then I want to get it right. I want to get... I want the game experience to be unique. I want the world that I'm creating to be as unique as possible. Um, and I can't do that if I'm constantly having to use my energy to explain how it's different. You know, that, and that's, that, that's a real struggle. Uh, context is such a big deal, and you're dealing with a market that un invariably there's no other way to approach it, right? I mean, the, you're, you're, you're uh, peddling to role players. Right. And so if, if this was a situation where you were approaching a fresh you know, audience, a fresh demographic that you didn't have to create that contrast, you know, I mean, it might be to your advantage, but then again, it might also mean you had to explain a lot of concepts you probably don't, you know, right from the start. I don't know, though, you, you cover a lot of ground. I do, but I always want to protect myself against the, what if this is the first time somebody has picked up a Jim Pinto book? Right, right. And... I, even when mm. I'm talking to people who know indie games, I find that most of them are not. I think I find they're not. Most of them aren't qualified to play anything outside of Fiasco or Apocalypse World, right? They they love indie games, but they they still haven't taken the time to learn all the nuance, as you say, context of how each of these things is different. And so, especially if they played Fiasco first, they come into the situation thinking. Oh, blowing shit up and ruining the game, that's the game. That's not the lesson you should be learning from Fiasco. The thing you should be learning from Fiasco is shared authority, shared relationships, uh, everybody taking yeah. turns. Those are the things Narr you should be yeah, learning Yeah, passing the narrative, all that right. stuff. So with, that's I, one of the reasons yeah. Protocol had to get made. Go ahead. No, I just I was just thinking about that because I mean it's that's kind of a shitstorm. <laughs> that the, there, there's nothing on which is, I mean obviously we knew your games are pretty unique getting into them. You know, first time uh, first time you showed me a protocol game, I was I was I found it I found it charming but different enough that I next time I sat down to play protocol I had to remember even though it's not complicated and and the not complicated is actually kind of problematic right right because not complicated also makes people think not as big a deal you know why bother or whatever I I guess I like um, our friend Richard uh, likes to develop these little games where he is just um, I've got a concept for um, a, a a scenario idea. And I'm going to build a quick little system that has like three stats that work on this scenario and they are specific to it. Mm -hmm. And then that's what this game is about. And that's kind of the indie game mechanic, right? Is you you find what you're trying to accomplish with that game and build a very simple system to accomplish that thing in as expedient and direct a way as possible. Seems to be the way it generally works. Right. Your system, um, and I, I haven't played as much of Praxis, but I played some, but the protocol system is very easy to adapt to a lot of ideas, obviously. Yes. Obviously, you've done a ton of that. You know, I talked about that. I talked to you about wanting to wanting to write some, and I never, I never really came up with anything I really like, but I wanted to write some stuff that I thought, you know, would work well for protocol because it didn't seem like it would be hard to build a game around something. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it would be sit down and, you know, take an hour to come up with some charts, but there's definitely a feel of if if I had an idea, this system is approachable. Yes. And and that's, I, I think, I've, I've got to feel like that's a huge advantage. 
but eh, I don't have a ton of people that want to play that game. Right. You know, and that's, I'm sure, one thing that a lot of people run into, which is one of the reasons I love running conventions, because you get to see people trying all kinds of stuff that right. they never normally would get to do. But I, I really feel like, um, I really feel like that, that challenge, that, that uphill climb, you know, that um, I'm sure is, is really frustrating for you has to plateau somewhere. You know, you've written enough contrast. People have gotten to try enough games. There's enough out there that, that can bend away because if everybody's played D&D anymore, that's not usually what most of them have only played D&D. People have, are starting to get out there and try other things, at least the people I meet in the gaming, in, in the, in the gaming community. And maybe that's, again, a problem that I, I run conventions. So I, I push a lot of push people to try a lot of different stuff. But I really feel like if, if, if people try anything else, they're in a mode where they can, you know, grasp that when it comes at them. It's just that the story game format is so unique. Um, the and, number I, one, and I realize I'll I say it broadly too, but I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, well, I don't know. Hmm. Go, go ahead. What are you going to say? The I, number I one complaint I hear about my games is we've got this one guy at the table that'll never play this. And yes. every group has that guy at the table and we know who he is. Um, yes. We don't even to talk about it. And the problem I have with that is that every group in America is being held hostage by one guy. <laughs> that that they will forever be playing some variation of D&D. People want to argue about system, right? Um, Savage Worlds really is no different than D&D. They're the same thing. They have a different resolution system, but if you pull back far enough, they're the same thing. The Game Master tells you to roll dice now. You roll dice. The Game Master tells you what those dice mean. In those games, right. and I'm not bashing on anybody's design, in those no, kind of yeah. kinds of games, one of those two people does not need to be there. The game master or the player does not need to be there if the only interaction going on is roll a die now. Okay, I'll tell you what that means. Why? Why? <laughs> right. Why? Right. I get what you're saying. And this is what I, I, I'm not. I think I think Apocalypse World sometimes can get a little hipster, but Vincent's a friend of mine, and I love. We've t- <laughs> we've talked mechanics endlessly, so I can see behind the logic of what he's doing because we'll talk about some of those things and so there's a difference between how he designed it and how people play it and because people come to apocalypse world from D, they just look at this oh this is just 2d6 but da 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 and so they'll still play it like D, but they'll just use a new dice mechanic and then all these idiots out there are making some sort of hack for it and there's maybe three good hacks for apocalypse world and the rest are people just saying I just like rolling 2d6 instead of a d20. That's why I use this. That's why I made this game. And it's insulting because the real strength of Apocalypse World is the relationship system and the fact that you do what you want until it's until the game master says, okay, that that's not okay. Now is the time that you have to roll dice. And that is very different from D&D because D&D trains us, if you want to do anything, there's a die roll for it. Right. Um, Which... I have I, I know exactly what you're talking about because in our approach to D and D in my group in my home and a lot of people I play with have gotten have kind of not butted heads with me about this but always have that weird look on their face. I I take that opposite approach. Right. You don't touch the dice until I tell you to, and we will often have things that are resolved that people are used rolling dice for, but I know what the characters are good at, and I will just move along. Right. This is not a challenge that matters. This is the story we're telling. Right. Until, of course, you get to things that, I mean, it's that, that system, obviously, is a combat resolution system with some stuff latched on. So you get to the combat shit, and it's it's going to be a lot of die rolling. But, I mean, that. I, so I kind of, I get what you're saying just from the the kind of the, the perspective of dealing with overcoming that hurdle with people, if that makes sense. Right. And, and we're back to Richard, uh, his designs, which you were talking about earlier, which is, He's only designing for the things that need to get done for the mm-hmm. context of this game. And I think, I think that's, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of every single move that Vincent designed into Apocalypse World. And I don't think that that would be possible, right? It's impossible right. to like everything that somebody makes, um, unless you make it that, cause they're not inside your head. But the idea of, of some of these moves and what they're designed to do is so foreign to how we've approached gaming in the past of, what do you mean I have to make a move now simply because I want to go and talk to that pretty girl? That's not something right. I've ever had to do in another role-playing game before. If I want to order a drink from the barmaid, I just order made. Well, no, in this game it's different because it's all about relationships, and it's finding out how much deeper your relationship's going to be because you're going to talk to this person in particular. And now there's a move for that. And that kind of design, when I'm not making something like Protocol, which I admittedly is bare bones and almost not a game, 
when I am making a move, a game like the Praxis games, which are much more involved, that's the mm-hmm. kind of thing I like to see. Yeah, here's the rule. You don't roll to spot something across the street or to climb a fence, but you do make a roll to talk to the pretty girl. It's a good point. And, and I mean, it does say a lot about how the the platform is, you know, how, when you put the platform together like that, it describes a lot of how the game is going to play out because it does determine what people have to focus on, which, I mean, like, again, you mentioned Praxis, which is a game where it literally is giving people the things they focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's that's interesting. I And, and, and again, I, I feel like that design methodology is... Um, elegant but probably does it is probably hard to really get past a lot of people's expectations oh um, which one in particular uh well I, I specifically when you're talking about i was thinking about apocalypse world because yeah. I, i've seen the struggle in getting yeah, yeah. over that yeah and yeah. the moves were something and i and i i i haven't i sat down and watched i haven't sat i haven't sat down and played but i kind of absorbed the way it works and then i played in a dungeon world game you know different hack it it didn't interest me because i'm a D guy it, but it, <laughs> i'm i'm just yeah. gonna i'm just gonna say this I, it is not good okay <laughs> it's not, yeah it's got it's got problems <laughs> it has so many niggling problems and i want to like it i've tried playing it four times now and everybody keeps telling me how great it is. And that could be true. But nobody's playing it great. Everybody's playing it like Pathfinder. Everybody's just playing it like yeah. another fantasy game. And Make, it's, making moves into almost like abilities, like feats yeah. or edges or something. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. And if that's all it does, it's just it's just 2D6 Pathfinder. And I don't I don't need that. I don't need Pathfinder. Why do I need 2D6 Pathfinder? With the uh, with the caveat that the approach feels different when people are playing it, so right. they can think it is because uh, when they're rolling, they're not rolling for the hard numbers. They're they're doing the kind of the 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 sliding scale thing. You know, um, I'm I, this move will accomplish this, but with to this degree or with this drawback or whatever. Right. Um, which I find I mean is interesting in concept, but just as limiting as anything else. And again, when I'm running a D and D game, I just decide that stuff. So it just doesn't really matter. Or from the player, or from my players, I encourage them to come up with that stuff. You know, I try to put a lot of narrative uh, investment into the players. It's because because that's the way I get to play my game. I can run my game any way I want to, but it's not made for it. And uh, Apocalypse World, I, I struggled with the idea. I and I do. Um, I do like the, the the structure of the system. I think it's it's elegant. I yeah. like using that word again, but it is. Uh, it doesn't speak to me, I guess, when I when I watched it and play. I was struggled with a couple of the why, why this. And, uh, and I'm not a lot, sure. of, I, a lot of that is old habits. People bringing old habits from their old gaming, yeah. right? And the tools are there. They are absolutely there. I cannot say enough good things about the toolbox that is Apocalypse World. But Have you seen like the, uh, the, the Forge in the Dark stuff, the Blades in the Dark? Yeah, yeah. I'm, well, I haven't played it, but I'm familiar with it. I um I got to try some of that because we did our our AP showcase. I think you you ran a game for one of those uh, last year where we're doing our live ga- streaming games and, yeah. and kind of showcase them. And uh, we did one of them. It wasn't Blades in the Dark. It was like Scum and Villainy or something. So it was like you know like a Firefly type thing or something. It was right. like a ship a ship doing doing jobs. But um, there was a it, again it it approached that whole systemically. It it approached everything you tried to do from a holistic perspective you know where when you are making rolls and checks you're to get gets the the ability to uh achieve these goals and kind of like some sort of arbitrary benchmarks that were played right and so it's that was a game that for example had a very kind of a much looser foundation but still very much required the referee to establish this and then this and then this and there had to be some a, a lot of kind of like intuitive decisions on the part of a game master that I was surprised by given how the the rolling and everything worked and um, I mean it's kind of like it's kind it's not like apocalypse world related but it's kind of like tangentially 60 degrees off of it you know what I mean yeah 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 and I I think one of the things that I do not like about indie games, and I'm going to flat out say this, is that everybody can see the heart beating inside of the machine. And the beauty of early gaming was it was already immersive because you didn't have to worry about as a player what was, you didn't even know most of the rules to D&D if all you read was the player's handbook, right? Right, right. Oh, yeah. So the game master was making the game as immersive as possible simply by keeping all of that out of your hands and letting you focus on, okay, just roll a d29 now. Okay, let's get right back to the action. 
And so you, there's, there's no missteps in traditional RPGs with a good game master and a good group. It's very important that those caveats exist because obviously bad players and bad jams are going to ruin anything. Sure. But when you get into indie games, everybody sees the heart, the muscle, the sinew underneath, and everybody has to stop and have that moment of, well, what do you think the thing is here? What are we rolling at? What is it that oh, we're trying to define? What, what is it that, 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 that's at stake? Blah, 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 blah. And so these, these game sessions, especially something like, say, Blades in the Dark, they get mired down because whatever, whatever moment we were having, the inertia is gone. The, 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 the beauty, the, the fun of that moment is, is evaporated because now we've been pulled out of it for five, ten minutes at a time sometimes. Um, and people can I, do I, this in D&D too, right? To people arguing over movement yes. rates in the middle of the game. Yes. I was going to say that. Go yeah. fuck yourself. You just ruined everybody's fun. Because, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they were exactly. in the moment and now they got to listen to you pontificate about something that's in a book five feet away. But you're also kind of hammering on something that I suddenly have five things I want to talk about at once. Um, you're, you're, you're kind of hammering on a thing that really illustrates the difference so finely in that, though, too, when they wanted to create this kind of narrative landscape for these indie games to, you know, you take out the rules, you put more, you know, um, narrative element into it or something to, to make up for it or to deal with it or to, to give it character, I guess. But you, it's the difference between like a task-oriented game and a, and a goal-oriented game, right? Right. Right, where the rules support task orientation, you're going to have games like you have systems like D and D or Pathfinder, where they are asking for roles for every little thing potentially. I mean, the, it, basically, it's there. You don't necessarily have to make it about that, but you can. Right. And when all you're doing is rolling to resolve an immediate task, you make the roll. It's done. Results immediately. We move on to the next thing. So you're creating a flow of events based on your actions. Whereas when you're doing these sort of like you know narrative trips you have a, a kind of a much broader scope you got to worry about because if all if I'm trying to make this role or these roles or these, you know, develop these um, potential of accomplishing these things over this kind of long sorted uh, panoply of, of uh, actions or elements that get me to the goal. So what I'm really rolling is my chance of accomplishing that thing. And maybe I get a pool of dice for it or whatever, depending on the system, obviously. Uh then okay now describe to me how you got there your mileage is going to vary right and and some players of course are going to shine and other players of course are going to stumble and it yeah. affects everybody yeah no matter what and and i feel like that's a different skill set that most role players generally end up developing and and obviously a good one for a game like yours uh you're well yeah i mean you've written a lot of games but you know what i mean like the the protocol games where uh, trying to where improvising scenes and and building narrative as you go can add a lot to it, but you also don't have to stretch yourself too far just to make it a working quality story, you know, because you because you're bouncing off other people all the time. So uh, let me play off of I love the word panoply by the way. Um, oh, yeah. Let me let me go back to what you were saying earlier about the the ease of making a protocol game because th <laughs> there is an illusion there that it is easy, right? Because and, and yeah, that's actually kind of what I was I was getting at is what I, I thought was probably a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, that what I have done with them, hopefully successfully, seventy five times, is that I have created this this illusion that this is oh this is simple, this is easy, I can get right into it. What I've done is I've created a system of roles, relationships, and charts, and world-building questions that, when they come together, build your context in 10, 15 minutes. So the rest of your time, your two to three hours after that, is a breeze because yes. you know exactly what you're going to do next, and you know exactly how the next thing's going to lead into the next thing. And then, because there are scene charts that you flip a card and it tells you what the scene is about and what kind it's a, it is... Right. And that is so vital. I'm, I'm going to brag for a minute. The most important chart in the game is the scene chart because it takes all of the analysis paralysis out of the process of what am I going to make the next scene about? And I've watched people struggle and I don't know why sometimes because the value immediately, the value in the card type immediately to me as the designer tells me, I know exactly what I would do with this scene. Don't, when people try to wedge their agenda in, that's when they sit there with, analysis process but when they let the card inform what the next thing is and they trust it it's going to tell a story over those 16 to 20 scenes and yeah i think if i've done anything right with protocol it is that i have built this ebbing and flowing process of going from scene to scene to scene without pulling you out of the story too many times and without having to stop and go and look up a rule of how do we resolve this now uh -huh. and so it's constantly immersive 
even though you kn- you're aware I'm a, both a player and an author of this story. That's a good point. I, 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 there's a lot of, um, I, I, you kind of refer to them as you know bad habits, but there's a lot of uh, limitations that people place on themselves that I could see making that challenging to dig into. Right. But it isn't because the tools aren't there, uh, and they're they're pretty accessible. Right. I mean, I I wouldn't have seen the problem that way, but I. But the only the, again, the couple three times I've gotten a chance to sit down and play a protocol game, for example, I've been with people that really kind of grokked it. It wasn't really a challenge at that point. Even if I wasn't as good at it as say Jesse or Tad, or you know, sitting here playing the game, I'm watching it, watching it go on, and just kind of fascinated with what people can take and run with. There was this you guy know, I used to play with. His name was Dave, and he would show up for anything that I made. We 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 would play every other week, and we were always playing either a practice or a protocol. And this, this was a good three years for me. I think a lot of it, when you see I'm angry online, it's probably because I haven't gamed in a while, um, <laughs> and I and I need that fix. But this was a, that was a pretty good three year stretch for me where we were showing up, and we were just playing one of my games or something similar on a Tuesday night, and there was this guy Dave that would show up, and Dave's Dave was just he was so smart. But he was one of those players that loved to create so much canon while we were playing the game that now he's written the entire story into a corner and nothing else can happen but the thing that he wants to have happen. The problem being is that the rules don't say that you get to be ultimately right 100% all of the time. That's not what the rules say. The rules say you can have all this canon, but guess what? I've got a drama point in my hand still, and I can violate your canon now, and I can write (laughs) us out of this story. Which is something that you cannot do with games that don't give that kind of narrative authority to people. Because if he was game mastering for us, right, and he'd written us into a corner and we couldn't make any decisions that mattered, that would be a really shitty session of D&D or whatever the game was. But because we're sitting down and we're playing Protocol or Praxis or any of these designs that I do with drama points... I don't think I'm brave enough to try to port the drama point concept to D&D. I just want to say that. (laughs) But it's not that complicated, right? And I learned this. No, you're right. (laughs) There was this guy, uh, Pajek. His name was Carl Pajek. Not Paycheck. Pajek. He was was Czech. Um, He was this guy that I met years ago, about 25, 30 years ago. He's the one that taught me drama points long before there was an indie scene. He said, I I have these things. I use them when I'm running D&D. If the game is not going where you want it to, give me one of your drama points and we'll make the game about you for five minutes. And huh. and he told me that and it stuck in my head. And I used to use it every once in a while from on various campaigns, but it stuck in my head. And when I sat down and was designing my own stuff, I said, I'm putting drama points in. I don't care what I make. Carl's a genius. He's going to get, he hasn't, he's never gotten credit, by the way. This is the first time I've ever mentioned his name. Ever, ever brought him ever up. Ever brought him up. But Carl really is responsible for drama points. He didn't call them drama points. He called them something else. And I don't remember what they were called, but, uh, they're in everything I make. They do der- different things in various games, but they're sure. in everything I make because one, Carl suggested them. And two, because they really are vital to giving you that escape hatch. From from just about anything, you know, from other bad players. Okay, I'm just tired of here hearing your windbagging. Here you go. Here's a draw point. Shut up, <laughs> right, well, Carl? I, Carl, if you're listening, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't want to hear any more from that character. You're now you've left the scene. That kind you're of done. Thing. <laughs> All, those those strengths should those things should be able to exist in a game. And it shouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. If he wants back in the scene, he can spend one of his drama points. Right. right, right. And if I've got more yeah. than he does, I can make sure he can't come back. Um, but you got to expend a lot of your currency to do it. Right. Exactly. And then if you're spending that currency, you get it over with quickly, by the way. It doesn't detract from the game for too long. And you're back in it. And the one guy, I, I got to tell this story. I was running um, my game, uh, Lady of Winter, which is a protocol. And there was a yeah. guy at the table that was driving me absolutely batty. There were six of us playing, which was too many. And there was one guy that was just, he didn't understand the process, and he was just dominating every scene, talking too loudly. I made sure that he was in every single interlude, so he had no drama points. So as the game was going on further and further and further, he had no power to interrupt, to get into scenes he wasn't in to have any power over the finale. And I did that on purpose, right? He's While he's in an interlude, he's ruining the game. And I understood that. But I was making sure on a meta level, this guy can't fuck up the finale. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, I'll do that sometimes with board games at tournaments. If I'm in a board game tournament, I'll do the same kind of thing. I'll paint people into corners. I'm, I'm actually really good at certain kinds of games. 
And so I'll look at the meta of a game very quickly and go, oh, this is a system to shut this guy down. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure that says good things about you, Jim. No, I'm it just, doesn't. It says just horrible things about me. It says horrible. <laughs> I am not a good person. And I'm tired of people thinking that I am. Nobody thinks I'm a good person. <laughs> you, you, do, you do try very hard to dispel that illusion pretty fast. <laughs> that was a funny way to phrase that. I uh, work. I worked on that one. Um, no. Uh, so here, here's a kind of interesting um, examination: the indie game kind of revolution, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, which we can largely kind of draw back. I think mostly to the late '90s, early 2000s. I would guess to the Forge, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Stuff like that. And um, the it seemed to me to and 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 it, again, impressions are based on exposure, right? So it kind of depends on who you are and what you're doing at the time. But it seemed to me that it, it really kind of came to power after like third edition D and D came out, right? And and the third edition D and D, the OGL, all that stuff. It created this, one. It created a platform that they intended to be ridiculously uh, accessible, and in that, in the way that ever that so many people tried to jump on it, it was successful, obviously. But the uh, big shift in the rules for the game did kind of what the opposite of what you were talking about earlier in a way it moved so much of the agency of the player to the hands of the players uh so many of the rules the rule the rule book for the player's handbook was huge yeah, you know, yeah. and everything you that's all you needed to run the game you know the dm's guide was basically a book of fluff with magic items not a bad book it was a great book for what it was i'm just saying it was you know a lot of advice on running a game not rules the how to run the game was all in the php at that point right players had the power and you started to see because the internet community is the abrasive shit ton of the hacks that it is turned into a whole bunch of people that got into it from that perspective and started turning tables on the game masters. Right. They'd had this sort of, you know, we're done with the antagonistic game masters ruling over us because they're the only ones who controlled everything that was going on. Now we have the power. If they don't play by our rules, you know, fuck those guys. We'll go find another GM. Right. And uh, it, it created this sort of weird kind of, um, I think, uh, acceptance that the, the game played mechanically in a way that everybody needed to have a piece of suddenly. And like you, you I'd been involved in traditional gaming since you know, I was young. And, you know, the, the game had always run the way it did just fine. And I liked the third edition rule set just fine at the time. It was a build system. You had, you had a certain level of system mastery to get good at it or whatever. And I didn't care about any of that because I didn't run games where it mattered. But, uh, but I had players that got a kick out of it. So there you go. But I definitely could feel the difference. And it seemed like a lot of these games that were coming out at the time were all about putting taking advantage of this idea that the control of the game, everything needed to be transparent. You know, all the nuts and bolts needed to be in the hands of the players need to be accessible to everybody. So as long as you still had a game where you had a referee, a game master of some sort, the players were still in control of everything. Right. You know, that person's job was to sit at the table and punt the ball back into play. More like a goalie than a ref. <laughs> what, what I've yeah. always said, and I, I don't like addition war arguments. Um, right. But no. this and, is a, I, and I'm not making any because I, no, like, I liked all those additions. No, I wanted to make it clear that I wasn't making addition war arguments. No, you're good. This is a long answer. but I And I've talked about this hundreds of times, is that D&D 3... And maybe five. I haven't played five yet. D&D 3 turned dungeon mastering into a job. And it it was no longer... I no longer have the authority to get anything done as the game master. But now I have the responsibility of doing it. And it's one of the things that ruins the game. It's one of the things that makes philosophically third edition a bad game. I appreciate some of the things that were going on in third edition. Um, trying to solidify things like all high numbers are good, all low numbers are bad. That's something that didn't exist in D&D back in the day. Streamlining mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. Streamlining mechanics, uniformity of language, that sort of thing. Um, I appreciated all of that. But there's lots of little things philosophically that go wrong. And I would, if I had to classify the last 20 years of role-playing games, I would call it the agency era. I wouldn't say that there's a renaissance of gaming going on. I would say there's a renaissance of people going on. And what's happening is is that people don't care about the entire experience of the table anymore. They care about their experience of the table. It's probably one of the reasons Protocol doesn't do well, is because it is a socialist game, not a capitalist game. It is, <laughs> it is a game where everybody's there to make sure that the story goes off well and that everybody has a good time. Even Fiasco, which is the same, borrows from the same blueprint of logic. Yeah. Fiasco yeah. is all about ruining everybody's time. 
That's yeah. the goal of Fiasco. And that may but have not since, been Morningstar's intention, but that is but what since came it's a game out of that box. Everybody's buying into that, that it works in that yeah, regard. Yeah, exactly. If, if everybody's buying, buying it. Yeah. Right. When you sit down to play a game of Nuclear War, the board game, you know the entire point of this game is to slaughter millions of people. You can't be <laughs> upset that it's a violent game or that people are dying in it. That's what you signed up for. If everybody signs up for Fiasco to ruin everybody's good time, then yeah, it's a good laugh. And you can walk away feeling, oh my God, I totally fucked your character. Ha ha ha. And everybody gets to enjoy that moment. But yes. you can't expect everybody to show up with that kind of agenda in mind to every kind of game they play. And if you play Fiasco and then you come over to something else in the indie environment, let's say uh, my, my favorite, um, Monsagor uh, 1244. Um, yeah, you've talked about it before. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. love that game. If you show up ruin, planning to ruin everybody's time, guess what? The ending is so fucking tragic. There's nothing you can do to ruin everybody's good time. And you're just going to be spinning your wheels and being an asshole at the table and ruining the fun of the game rather than ruining their character's experience. Because right. everybody dies in the end of that game anyway. Spoiler alert. Um <laughs> That's it, not a spoiler, but it's written right into the rules. That, <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think what has happened with the term agency is everybody misinterprets the word agency conveniently in their favor. And therefore, agency becomes this thing of, well, what's in it for me? Why am I here? What's in it for me? And so if you had to qualify the last 20 years of gaming, it has been about how do I, what, what side of the rules am I on? Oh, good. I'm on the side that is written in my favor. I'm going to be having a good time. What? This game is complicated. If I do this, I'll use my game Carcass as an example, where it's very difficult to win. The game is not written in your favor. Um, mm -hmm. I think people shy away. From, it's also overly complex, and it's a, it's a shit game. Do not buy it. But it was a great experiment, and I'm glad I did it. But it doesn't sell for a number of reasons. But if, if it was a good game and it still didn't sell, I could easily say Carcass doesn't sell because it is hard to play and it is sure. not written in the player's favor. And I think if you're a young game designer and you are listening to me pontificate right now, learn this. You need to write games. Modern games are written in such a way that the player is the superstar. And if you're not making the player the superstar, you oh. are not going to get that yeah. instant gratification out of your consumer. Well, I know people that won't play, I was going to say Fiasco. Well, I know people that won't play Pandemic because it's right. so hard to win. Right. You know, and I, I get it. You you have to, again, you have to have buy-in for what you're playing and be able to enjoy the play experience right. that you're, you know, you're the, the journey you're going on. I don't I don't think that's hard to wrap your head around, though. But I understand why it doesn't appeal to people. Yeah. You know, by the same token. I mean, it's, it's not hard to figure out. But that that personal kind of, and, and I agree, I, I like I like the way you, you know, kind of distill agency that way. I I agree that it's become a kind of a this, you know, pontification of self-oriented um I don't want to say interest, but uh investment. But it is still weird to me to see how that transformation wasn't gradual but still didn't seem to be obvious to people you know everything seemed to happen all at once the games were changing the audience was building of course because the internet age was just flying in and you know we had this huge community suddenly a pool of people out there that could you know share ideas and knowledge and around about the same time right tail end of the 90s right but before that gaming was always about the experience you had at the game and the things you were doing the part you did was the part of the fun you did and um i still i still insist on a culture at my table that takes th that requires people to be able to relax and enjoy other people's contributions to a game without worrying about what they're doing. And I'm that ge I'm that game master that everybody says is, is bad at GMing because I like it when the party splits up. Right, right. You know, be because the stories get more interesting, gets distilled down to a couple people here and a couple people there, so there's more going on for them, but everybody else gets to sit back and enjoy what they're doing. And of course, like everybody, I've got the one, especially my bigger games, I've got the one guy at the table who is bored out of his mind during that time. But he's learned, that guy has learned, if he's if he makes noise about it, he's going to be disinvited. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I don't mean in a mean way. I just mean you're obviously not enjoying this experience. you got to make the choice. Yeah. You know, you you don't disrupt everybody else's fun and just get what you want out of it, or you go somewhere else and right. play your games. Uh, but you're, but that's, you're that culture came from clear back then. You're talking about social contract now, which as soon as you, you get into social yeah. contract character, it doesn't matter what game you're playing. 
right? You could use any rule set with that group and they know you and they trust you. No, and, that's, that's true. And yeah, they're going to get true. that experience out of you regardless of the system you're using. And but I'm not shy about employing the same expectations even with people that haven't gained with me. And I may not be really good about communicating them ahead of time. I lead by example. You know, it's it's and I always try to install if I'm playing with new people, I always try to install people that know the way I like to run games that are there as well. Um, often to show them kind of how how they can what they can do that they've never tried in terms of role playing at a table, <laughs> at a game table. But it's definitely part of the experience. I, yeah, social contract. I agree, but it's not one that I usually have have much of a sit down about, and I've never had. And maybe that's a failing on my part. Something people need more of. I used to ex try to explain to people. I never had that conversation exactly, but when new people would join, I would say, "What you think is going on is never what's going on. There's <laughs> there's always something deeper to what I'm doing and saying, and I'm only giving you what your characters can see." And, and there are times that can be complicated for people. I get that. Yeah. Um, I I famously remember when I first moved here to Wichita and started gaming with uh, my wife's friends here at the time, that they were used to a much more, you know, uh, dungeon bashing type of game. Right. And she thought they would enjoy the way I ran uh, ran a game. And so I, I invited them over and played. And the first couple sessions, they were trying to kind of get their, their footing. Right. And so session three was the session where I made the whole thing about them figuring out what was going on right. via an NPC who was lying to their face the whole time. And they had to figure that out themselves right. through role-playing. You know, I never asked for roles. I never intimated that there were roles that needed to be made. They never thought to ask. They just started figuring stuff out. And once they did, they got really invested. And right. that was that was the key, right? That was the point at which we had, we had uh, pushed that button and moved it forward. And from that point forward, I knew that I could bring them in to the narrative just by engaging them personally, you know, and teaching them, teaching them basically how I wanted to run a game. It, it didn't necessarily mean that it was going to be a perfect match. And if it hadn't, obviously, you know, go, go play another game is not a problem. But uh, it, it was the best way I could come up with to introduce the idea without trying to sit down and explain it to somebody because explaining it doesn't ever really feel like it has much of an impact to me. You know, I, I liked what you just said. It's like, what's going on isn't what you think because that, that just draws the question. And if you can create the question in their mind, maybe they're looking for answers. Right. But that's a more elegant approach than I would have ever had. The whole, you know, um, don't 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 think you have it figured out, right? <laughs> right. Because then they just think you're you're saying, you know, I got I got something you don't got, <laughs> and that would have been the only way I would have come up with at the time. So um, I like that. Don't uh, uh, don't think don't don't uh, what what's going on isn't necessarily what you think is going on. Is right. You said it. Yeah. Yeah. I I learned um I learned a lot from uh, Charles Ryan wrote a uh, game called Psychosis. And I learned a lot from just the opening. I never played the whole thing. The book is written sort of as a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing, but that you uh -huh. run for people, which was weird. But the opening few pages really opened my eyes to how lenses work in role-playing games and that your lens, everybody's got their individual lens. And what if sometimes when you roll dice, it's about imparting new wisdom to the player by opening that lens wider? so to speak. And this is kind right. of hard to explain, but imagine I'm running D&D &D for you and your character believes that the world is flat and <laughs> I make you make a roll and I say, and then I say to you, or I take you into another room and I say, what if the world is round? I'm not telling you the world is round, right? I'm not doing that to your character. I'm asking your character to stop for a moment. This idea pops in his or her head wow, what if the world is round? I've always thought the world was flat, but what if the world is round? And now you go back to the table with something to think about, something to chew on. And that's not something D&D &D does well or often, is right. to make people start asking questions of what it is that they their characters believe. Well, you know that this is true about this specific god, but what if the people that wrote the book were lying? And now your character has something to go and think about while I'm dealing with everybody else. And huh. And so I'm not at any one time ever giving you information. I'm never info dumping you. I'm doing the uh, I'm doing something I hope is is more in line with how people would think through their day to day, which is here's a piece of information I've never considered. And right. I and think that's how Cthulhu should work, actually. And, it, and then it hits the point of cognitive dissonance and you go insane. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> um. Have you, did you ever um, see uh, 
Robin Law's Hillfolk game. Yeah. When it came out. Yeah. I uh, I loved the idea. I, I, I remember reading Hamlet's hit points and, and just kind of like thinking, I don't even understand how I'd ever implement these ideas. And then his 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 um, Hillfolk, which is, I, I think he was planning to do other games, and I don't know if he ever did. But I remember talking to him about it when he was running the Kickstarter uh, on one of our earliest episodes, actually. And uh, the idea that, you know, you could find a way to systemize drama messed with me. Yeah. But again, he did that thing we're talking about where that was the only system, you know. So it was like your character has these pulls pulling them in different directions because it's dramatic to how you would write it on stage. You know, so you this guy, you know, any any person has these pulls that um, are priorities to them, prerogatives to them, you know, our needs, our desires or whatever. But there's some there's some inherent conflict there. And I remember talking to, and I probably talked about it on the show, actually. It's just been a while. I remember talking to my players about it and trying to say, every time somebody was kind of stagnating and on either not sure what to do with the character or starting to lose interest in playing them or, or you know, trying to figure out where they were going, uh, it's one of the things that would jump to mind. Well, is there a way we can create internal conflict? But it always felt like I'm having to having to approach it from a metagame perspective. I'm, I'm wanting to get the player to develop that, not me. You know, I could, I could punt ideas, right. but I, I want it to be there their development and and then they could they can if they'd come with something like they can feel like they can own it too and i never have to step in and try to influence it right but the um questions like that are interesting to me the idea that if you can if you can find a way to get people at the table to start exploring their assumptions or engaging their characters expectations in a way that gives them something to something to try to learn about obviously in a way that we don't usually we don't realize that we as people do most of the time because our learning process is kind of engraved since you know engraved since we're like you know six months old, you know it's, it's there's no real uh, revelation there. But we're trying to teach our characters how to learn when we are already learning machines that don't really typically have an interest in making them learn in a role playing game. Right. The assumption and is because we have our hand up the puppet's ass that the puppet right. thinks exactly the way we do, and that. Or that anything we try to do that that is um, excised from that is shallow. Right. You know, right. is one-dimensional as a consequence. You know, it's like, okay, so my character's not just like me. He's a brute, so everything he does falls into the category of brute. I, you I, know. People spend a lot of time with the question, what's my character's motivation? They should be asking, what's my character's point of view? Thank you. That's excellent. <laughs> I'm on um, a roll today, baby. Yeah, no, that's that. You're hot. That's good. Yeah, I uh, I wish I'd had time to come and see you while I was up there when I was visiting my brother. Yeah, it doesn't help help that I had just gotten my shot too. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of sucked. It was bad timing, but you know, I get it. I, and we were up there for uh, up there in Portland for a week probably because yeah. we'd spent you know a few days driving each direction and uh god it was such a pretty area up there it was just a really neat to not not the city so much i mean i like culture so it was nice to see the city because i never been there but you know my brother lives uh in like troutdale right at the foot of the gorge mm-hmm. you know and just all that up there he, he wanted to drive us up there and check stuff yeah. out and we loved did you get to drive up to mount hood no, no, there was a lot of stuff that was still closed. Oh my god. It was god. in April. Yeah, some of those roads um, up there. I'm a I'm a back roads kind of guy. I love riding motorcycles <laughs> on back roads. So whenever I yeah, find one, I say, <laughs> I gotta come back here on a bike. Well, I'm gonna go up and visit again. I'm not sure when because you know, money. But we're it's it's on our list now that I've been out there once. I I wanna go spend some time out there and hang out with him some more and yeah. just probably just so I can take my guitar and bash around with some of his friends, you know, because he's got a lot of musician friends and stuff. And there's a guy up there, that, a friend of his, who's got a studio he's been putting together that looks really nice. Uh, but I'm trying to do some, uh, do some work on, a, on my next project up there. But I really uh, want to make sure next time I head up there that I come up to Seattle and visit you, if nothing else. Yeah. Or, or something, because it's not a big trip at that point. Um, yeah, I'm, and, uh, you know. I'm three hours, three and a half hours from Seattle, from Portland. Yeah. Yeah, so you said you're pretty close, which was, I mean, enough that if it's like it would have been, it, it would have been great to see you, but especially if you'd been feeling shitty, it's like that's a bit of a drive each direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that day after the so. shot was just miserable. Yeah, that's that's what I like that. Well, you got a Kickstarter going. Um, I'm going to go ahead and link to that okay. here, and uh, um, I I appreciate I appreciate the conversation. I I mean, we don't get a chance to talk enough, and if I'm not careful, we could just go on like this for like three yeah. Or four hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just realized an hour had passed, so. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and we still have a lot to say. I, I feel yeah, like definitely. we can go on and on about this. Which is why I have a ton of episodes with you on them. Yeah, <laughs> speak, uh, it has nothing to do with me being wordy and 
I won't shut up. Uh, yeah, maybe it's just you feel like you need promotion more than no. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you're the only person I know, Eric. You're the only person with a podcast that I know. That, that fucking figures. I'm telling you, I actually, I um, yeah, I wonder with a lot of the people I talked. It used to be really kind of uh, easy to get people to want to get on and talk about their stuff, and now they're getting real selective. And so, um, and not saying you're easy or anything, Jim, but just just kind of appreciate that you, you want to actually bother <laughs> getting to that point. We've always had easy conversations, Eric. This is a fun show it to helps. come on. No, I appreciate that. I was on somebody's well, podcast recently. He was asking me questions, and he wasn't listening to the answers. And then he'd uh, ask me a question that had no bearing on anything I just said. I thought, I'm I was glad I'm telling, here. telling somebody the other day, I... Um, when when people have asked me what the most important skills I developed um, over the course of my career have been, and career is a tricky word, of course, because I had a career in radio and then went on to do other stuff. But probably the most um, valuable skill to me has been interviewing. Is learning how to talk to people, right. uh, not not at them, not past them. Right. Learning how to listen and find things to. And I watch I watch really good interviewers, uh, people like um, Trevor Noah is this amazing interview guy. You know, I don't always connect with what he's saying or how he's saying it. Right. But he is so good with with people, even if he's critical of the things they're saying or disagrees with them. He has this way of talking to them, presenting viewpoints and arguments without ever being confrontational or seeming confrontational and also not seeming timid. And stuff like that is so, so powerful if you know how to engage somebody. Not that you're confrontational or... <laughs> uh, <laughs> eh, not with... not You're not confronting me about anything. We don't have to argue about much. I don't agree with all of your perspectives. Right. The, the, the opinions of Jim Pinto are not necessarily the opinions <laughs> of... That would but, be really sad if everybody agreed with everybody on everything. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I just enjoy having conversations with people who really have something to say. You know, and especially if it's not an opinion that is just parroting somebody else's ideas and they don't know why they think that way. Yeah, and I've run into a couple of those over the years. Uh, even on the show. So, yeah. But I, I appreciate you having I appreciate you spending some time with me. It's good to have you on. And I hope your podcast um, is gratifying for you. I hope you uh, have a good time with it because it sounds like you got a fun idea anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just got to... I got to get past this technology gap for myself, and I just got to record that first episode and see if it has legs. There you go. Do you know who you're going to have on your first show? Yeah, my buddy Mike, who I gamed with for years and years and years, I know exactly which character we're going to talk about (laughs) because he would never shut up about this character when I knew him. (laughs) So the rest of the world needs to suffer in hearing about it. That's fair. That's really fair. I like that. Uh, so, so it's going to be a really, really long show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping we can do it all in, say, 30 minutes or so because yeah, we don't need any more long-form podcasts out there that people that want to shut up. <laughs> I don't um, know what you're trying to say. I, You know, I, I, I do try and make sure I fall within a certain kind of territory as far as duration because my, my fans have let me know what they like. And the ones who have actually bothered to let me know what they like are the ones I'm going to cater to because if you don't like it, you're either not listening or you're not telling me. Right, right. But um, so, I, you know, people seem to like, especially in terms of our roundtable discussion, um, something that's got a little bit of breath on it but doesn't go on for two or three hours. You know, you need to be able to listen. And that's tr- that's troublesome, though, too, because nowadays, you know, everybody's moving to video. YouTube is where you get a lot of stuff. YouTube is where I get a lot of stuff. You yeah. Know? And uh, short form, short form. Used to be YouTube, everything was short form. Right. And now it's getting to where YouTube videos, of course, can be 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes, too. But uh, that's that's kind of where it's at now. And, you know, I've, I've got friends who that's their entertainment. They sit there and let YouTube run all day. That's, I, do, that's I don't remember the fellow's name, but he broke down one of the Star Wars movies. And it's over the four videos, it takes nine hours for him oh to examine God. everything wrong with episode seven. Did you actually watch this? I watched the whole thing. I watched the whole thing. Why? You don't even like Star Wars. I don't like Star Wars, but I love <laughs> listening to SAS talk about structure. And sure. so you, even if you don't like a thing, you can learn so much by what is wrong with it. You can learn more from what is wrong about a thing than you can about what is right about a thing. I think failure is such a, a great tool for learning, much more so than success is. I like that. That's very good. Should be a should be a tagline for you. I've I've given you so many free taglines this episode. I mean, you take yeah, you take yeah, any you of you want. 
You gonna are you, are you gonna run anything for SalamiCon this year? You feel like I am that? going to try. I'm in the midst of buying a house and moving, and I have no idea when everything's gonna close and the move is gonna happen. Oh, dude, are you moving out of the area? No, 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 just moving three miles up the road. But finally found a place that's big enough. And yeah, uh, you always said it wasn't quite place you're at. Yeah, and it's really uh, loud here, so I needed this, to find this a place time, that's quiet. This time, when you get there, unpack. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just you a know. few miles, so the beauty is I'm just gonna throw it all in the truck and just drive it over in waves yeah yeah that always seems like a good plan yeah. and then in operation it ends up taking a lot longer than you expected it to because it seems like sure i could just go do that anytime oh Something yeah a couple of those moves well <laughs> no we're definitely going to give ourselves a timeline because we want to be able to get out of this place and sell it so we can't do that yeah. until yeah it's there's empty that. well good luck with that sir yeah yeah thanks i think you're the first person i've told actually so well, let me know if you uh, if you, if you want to run something and uh, we'll, I, well, you, you know, that. I want to run something. It's just uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. time of when then. things are going to fall. So I was trying to say because I was going to say you know it might be a good time to do the eons thing since so that's your kickstarting, but also yeah. you've done eons at at which at the at the con, and this isn't a specifically Wichita con since it's all online, right? But I mean, you know, we do what we can. <laughs> all right, find uh find Jim's stuff at uh, Post World Games. Um, is it a dot dot com? Com. But I'm mostly you, on drive through RPG. So. I was going to say you don't you don't you don't put a lot of links and stuff on the site. So if you look look at your uh, post world games products on on drive through, yeah, the best place to find stuff. And you got a ton of it. There's a lot, I a lot of it there. Do almost all of it's good. Well, I mean, I I can't <laughs> say that, but you are welcome to. Well, there's uh, what you, carcass isn't any good, but uh, <laughs> carcass isn't. I'm happy to admit. There's now there. Okay. There are two versions of Carcass. The original Carcass is, fa- is fine. Carcass mm. Exodus, the big one, the 300-page monstrosity. Which I got through Kickstarter. <laughs> it is just, it's just a mess. It's just too much. I overdid no, it. No, I, I only said that because you had said it. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. But I, I'm happy to admit when I fuck up, right? I think- is, your, uh, is King for a Day still your biggest seller ever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, it's, it's a, a good book. What, the top I'm- is titanium, so platinum or something. I'm one below... Whatever the categories the top, top are, I'm the second highest. Dude, I one of these days I really plan to do something solid with it too. I've been waiting for the right opportunity because I feel like it needs a real campaign. Right. And I only get to start those every once in a great while. Right. So I, I I'm looking forward to it because it's a book that I've I've always got because uh, you got you gave me a physical copy or I sold me a physical copy a long time ago. Right. And um, I got the updated one through the Kickstarter as a PDF, so I got everything. You know, and then I thought, oh, we're, we're dealing with the digital stuff. I thought I was going to do it last year because of the pandemic and everything. And you had like the maps and stuff, but uh, it didn't end up happening. So it's still, it's still one of those sitting on my little wish list. I've got, you know, kind of on my, um, I've got a file <laughs> of stuff that I want to do, want to start some of the stuff, want to broadcast some of it's just I want to do at home. And uh, King for Days always got a spot on that list. So I'm hoping I get to it. And when I do, I, I'm going to try and make sure I record it so that it's out there. It's um, it. It's a good 20, 30 session investment. Easily, I, I yeah. got that impression, yeah. Um, and then for that, you know, I mean, it's for a six uh, six month campaign. Um, tw- for a, if we're doing it like twice a week, or if it's once a week, would be like a like a yeah. year. I could see that. I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty accessible, I think, and a lot in it, so much in it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Good book. Anyway, just pimp that for no reason. A- after you All run right. it, we'll talk about it, and I'll tell you some of the secrets of why I made it the way I made it. <laughs> I don't get any of that stuff in advance. Huh? No. God, no. <laughs> I have to earn it. I love it. Right. All right, Jim Pinto, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>